So I left there and finally was like, I want to try some different stuff, but I was applying for jobs. And by that point, I'd been practicing for six, six, seven years. And when you're that far into a legal career, nobody wants to let you try new stuff. They want to hire you for the stuff that you know how to do. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We hope you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that is unapologetically you and then go get it. If you feel like you were meant for more and you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Sometimes when people find this podcast, they are in a great situation and trying to find an even better situation or trying to evolve their career. But most of the time, when people find this podcast, they feel stuck in their careers. Sometimes it even feels like being in jail. I remember the first day they were walking us around and they said they were giving us our offices and they showed me my office. And I looked in there and I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going in there. It was literally like the scene in the movie where the guy's been sent to jail and he's walking down the long hallway carrying his blankets, right? And he has to go like, here's your cell. That's how I felt where I was just like, great, lock me in this box. Why don't you? That's Adam Bloom. Adam finished law school and entered the workforce right in the 2008 recession, as it was starting. Perfect timing, right? Well, he had a bad feeling from the beginning, but with the recession starting, he figured he could stick it out until things turned around and then things would get better eventually. Only they didn't. As he continued to unhappily practice law, he felt more and more stuck as the years went on. He attempted to leave the legal industry many times for over a decade. He was hoping to turn his excitement for writing into a career, but he kept hitting wall after wall after wall after wall. And then eventually he would go back to law. By the way, every single person that we get to help through a career change to their ideal role goes through a series of very difficult events and not just difficult events. Points where they hit some pretty serious lows. And we even have an entire chapter of the Happen to Your Career book dedicated to adjusting to setbacks. So don't worry. If you feel like you've tried and can't escape from your current job or industry, well, this is completely normal. Adam, in his case, he was tired of running in circles trying to escape law. So he reached out to us to see if getting out of the legal industry was even possible. Now, if you've listened to many episodes of the Happen to Your Career podcast, you've heard a lot of attorneys who have transitioned out. So yeah, we know it's possible. But in his case, he began to learn his signature strengths, reflect on things that he really enjoyed doing, and did a fantastic job using these learnings to experiment with what he really wanted. In my conversation with Adam, you'll hear how he persevered through even more setbacks, but adjusted his plan along the way and finally began to see a permanent path out of law. I graduated law school in 2008. So I remember I've always thought back on the first day of work that I had where I got hired by one of the largest law firms in the world called Jones Day in New York. And I was working in their New York office right in midtown Manhattan. And my dad, who is an attorney, took me shopping and we bought a couple of suits and I put one on and I take the train to Grand Central. And I remember running up the stairs to get out of Grand Central onto the sidewalk, like, here we go, first day. And I arrived at work and everyone was like, welcome, here's the deal. The economy is collapsing. A lot of our big clients have gone bankrupt. We don't really have any work for you. We don't know what's going to happen to the firm. 
try to hold on for dear life. And so immediately things kind of went sideways where the opportunities that I thought I was going to have to explore options within the legal profession or even explore options outside of the legal profession. Because the truth is that I remember having conversations with friends in law school where we were like, this seems like it's going to be (laughs) completely miserable. What is your exit strategy for this? And we were talking, I'm going to invest in real estate. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. We were already plotting and scheming how we were going to get out of being lawyers before we graduated. And one of the reasons that I went to New York was because in my mind, I always thought of New York as being the place in America that had the most opportunity per square foot. That it's like, I don't know what I want to do next. I've always tried to be open-minded and sort of follow my nose and take opportunities as they come. So I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to have a little money in my pocket. I'm going to know people. I'm going to meet people and something will come up. Well, that doesn't really happen when you're in the midst of one of the worst economic downturns since the Great Depression. So everything shifted from wide open horizons and like Mary Tyler Moore spinning around in the middle of the street and throwing her hat in the air to like, just try not to starve to death. Can we do that? How about we can pay the rent and eat food? Let's do that. And so it became a situation where um, there weren't really options to do anything in terms of exploring career alternatives inside or outside of the legal profession. And I got basically forced down a path of becoming a corporate litigator and, and then tried litigation in a number of different areas and just never really found a place in it that felt worthwhile. What do you mean I, when you say felt worthwhile? What, is, what does that mean for you? You know, it's interesting. I remember when I did orientation, my first year of law school was at University of Arizona, and then I transferred to UCLA where I graduated. But there was a speaker at orientation in Arizona who gave this very impassioned speech about how being a lawyer was like being a samurai. And he said that one of his favorite feelings was to walk into a courtroom and know that everyone in the courtroom was against him. And he said, and you take out your sword and you just wade in and you're just going to go and fight and come out with having persuaded everybody to be on your side. And I had worked in politics and I kind of, I liked the idea of law as almost a fighting style where it's like, I don't want to get in a fight with fists or knives or guns. I want to get in a fight with words and ideas. That's the kind of battle that I want to have. And that's what I want to do with my career. And I want to find, so I kind of felt like Ronan, I was the wandering samurai. I was looking for the fight that was worth having. I can talk, I can write, I can think, I can strategize. Who can I do this for that would feel satisfying, would be worth my time? And I swear to you, in 12 years, I don't think I ever found it. And the truth was that the process of litigation was just not interesting to me. It was tedious and boring. And, you know, mostly what I found was that the clients who could pay were mostly not worthwhile and the clients who were worthwhile couldn't pay. And so if you want to have those two sides of feeling like your work is satisfying and having a comfortable standard of living within the legal profession, it's very, very hard. And the other thing that just fundamentally changed in the U.S. economy, like the world just turned, was going into that 2008 recession, I saw the world one way and coming out of it, the world was just different. I mean, I was wrong. I had job offers with law firms in San Francisco and I turned them down to go to New York because I said, no, there's more opportunity in New York. New York will be more exciting. Wrong. When that dust settled on that 2008 recession, the world revolved around San Francisco. It was Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, the FANG stocks. Those were the people who were defining the future, running the economy. That's where it was at. And I had simply missed the boat. And it just fundamentally shifted the way I thought about where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do 
you know, as I say, I just never found a home in the legal profession that felt like that combination of the things that you talk about that you and I have spoken about at length, people who share your values, people who treat you in a way that, you know, you want to be treated, that you enjoy working with, who you enjoy personally, at least to some degree so that you can spend a lot of time around them and work that feels meaningful and, and feels like a fit and also allows you to support yourself in a lifestyle that meets your needs and your wants, frankly. And and I just never found that combination of factors in the legal profession. And it increasingly felt ridiculous where as a lawyer, you're working insanely hard on very complicated issues and making just a lot less money than people who are working much less hard on less complicated things that look like a lot more fun. And at some point, I think for me, I woke up and I said, I don't want to be the lawyer. I want to be the client. I'm tired of helping other people with their stupid ideas. I want to work on my stupid ideas. Let me jump in here. And I say, you know, what's really interesting here. A lot of different things, but one in particular, that orientation that you were talking about where yeah, he's describing the role that he has and looking at it as, as the samurai, like clearly law was right for that person, or at least it sounds like it based on how he's describing it, where yeah. that was, even though you wanted to be able to have that war or have that battle or have that fight with words and being able to do it in that way, like clearly law was not right for you. But I think what's so interesting there is it's so much about finding what is right. And I know from chatting with you and just to give a little bit of context here, this isn't something that that happens all the time, but Adam and I got the opportunity to do a little bit of work together because as you were getting into writing, I know I'm jumping ahead in your story here. Part of your experiments were to take on different types of writing. And we we got to do a couple of projects together, which were super fun. And it allowed me to get to know you and your story a whole bunch more. And one of the things I remember chatting with you about is there were a couple really significant low points in your law career. So I'm wondering if you can describe some of those to us and then what caused you to decide to make the final decision to transition out of law in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, as I said, well, first of all, yeah, I thought just to say thank you. I mean, the opportunities that that we had to work together were really helpful to me in the career change, both from the perspective of having work and writing work to do that was interesting and had some money coming in. And, and also, frankly, was extra free education for me and your sort of philosophy of career change and sort of a philosophy of life overall. Because I think the thing that I came to grasp more and more was this sort of holistic approach to, yeah, you need a good job, but the idea that your job is over here and your life is over there is silly. The two are intertwined in a way that is you know, completely inextricable. And so you need to think not of just your ideal job, but ideal job, but your ideal life and how does one fit into the other. And so I felt like I got a lot of free career coaching out of doing that writing work. So that was extra fun for me. But yeah, I mean, low points in my legal career. I remember starting when you are in law school, the way you get kind of brought into the profession is you get a summer job. And I took a summer job and you interview for them. It's a very intense interview process. You have to do it during the school year while you're studying and and they do callback interviews. You have to travel for the interviews often. And, you know, it's very difficult to get one of these jobs. And then you get one. And I remember the first day they were walking us around and they said they were giving us our offices and they showed me my office. And I looked in there and I was like, oh, no, 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 
no, I'm not going in there. It was literally like the scene in the movie where the guy's been sent to jail and he's walking down the long hallway carrying his blankets, right? And he has to go like, here's your cell. That's how I felt where I was just like, great, lock me in this box. Why don't you? So immediately it was kind of, there were pretty clear signals that this was not going to be a long-term fit for me. And then, you know, as I said, I mean, the experience at Jones Day was very difficult because we were in the middle of a recession and the firm was sort of operated on the idea that they always have more work than they could possibly handle, which when the world is not ending is true. But when the economy is collapsing, it requires a different level of uh, planning and management acumen, which frankly, they did not have. And I hung on there for two, almost three years. And then just one day out of the blue, got a call from the partner who ran my practice group. And he said, we're going to have to let you go. You're going to have to look for something else. And I asked him why. And he said, well, the truth is that the quality of your work here is just not up to our standards here at Jones Day, which was nonsense because you know I had had an annual review with him, not two months earlier, where he had told me verbatim, you're a hard worker and you do good work. Two months later, my work is not up to snuff. So it was ridiculous. It was just a cover for the fact that they had too many lawyers and not enough work and the economy was not repairing. And so I had to go. So they gave me that notice right in like October or November, which is the worst time to be looking for a job because it's the holidays. So nobody's thinking about hiring. Everybody's thinking about trying to survive to the end of the year and then getting to stop for a couple of weeks. So it put me in this awkward spot of trying to find a new job when no one was hiring in notwithstanding, I mean, on top of the fact that it was this terrible, deep recession. So I ended up at the New York City Law Department, which it's basically the city's law firm. They have lawyers who represent the city in various capacities. And I was hired to defend the city in civil rights lawsuits. So it was basically people who accused the police of using excessive force or corrections officers of using excessive force. They would sue the city and I would defend those lawsuits. And truthfully, they ran the gamut. There were some suits where we were wrong. The city was wrong. The cops had, had misbehaved. The corrections officers had misbehaved. And we would look at that and say, yeah, we were wrong here. And we would settle. We would pay out. And there were some cases where people would come in and the lawsuit would say so-and-so was standing on the corner of this street and that street minding his own business when the police grabbed him for no reason, threw him against a wall, handcuffed him, slammed his head into the hood. The handcuffs were too tight. They drove him around for two hours before they even took him to the station, say, oh my God. And I would talk to the arresting officer and say, what happened here? And they'd say, the guy's a drug dealer. He deals drugs on that corner. We've arrested him dealing drugs on that exact corner 12 different times. So Sometimes we were right, sometimes they were right. But the reason I had taken the job was because after the experience of doing corporate litigation at Jones Day, I I wanted to try and find something that felt more meaningful. And when you're studying law, the cliche almost is that there's nothing more meaningful or socially beneficial than fighting for people's civil rights. So I said, great, let me try and find a way into that world. If I get a job on the defense side, then maybe I can pivot into a job on the plaintiff side. Well, what it turns out to be is that a civil rights plaintiff's attorney is pretty much like any other plaintiff's attorney. They have to keep the lights on. You know, somebody's got to pay for the suits and the haircuts and the office and the secretary and the Mercedes and the apartment and the kids private school. And in order to do that, you have to represent some people who you would probably rather not represent. Some of them deal drugs. Some of them are career criminals. Some of some of them are innocent people who were attacked by the police. No question. Right. Who were wrongfully hurt by the police. But um, some of them are not. And I just looked at that and was like, not a fit for me. This is not going to be the long term solution here. So I moved on from that 
And I moved, as I mentioned, graduated from UCLA Law and I had wanted to go back to California. So I moved back to California, got a job with a small law firm, thinking I've done a big law firm. I've done a public sector law firm. Let's try a small law firm. Well, I stayed there for two years and did not have a great experience. That's the, the short answer there. I, got, I was very bored. I wasn't crazy about the people I was working with. I was not crazy about the work that I was doing. It was just dull all around. And so I left there and finally was like, I want to try some different stuff, but I was applying for jobs. And by that point, I'd been practicing for six, six, seven years. And when you're that far into a legal career, nobody wants to let you try new stuff. They want to hire you for the stuff that you know how to do. So it's the quote that I would always mention to you, I think, from True Detective, that first season when it's Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey chatting about being cops. I think it's Woody Harrelson says, you got to be careful what you get good at. That was always like the quote over the door for me of my legal career was like, yeah, dude, you went down this road and now this is what you know how to do in the US economy. So bully for you. You can be a corporate litigator and that's it. The whole thing of pigeons. For sure. That's right. The holing of pigeons. Yes. So I started my own legal practice as a way to say like, well, if no one will give me the opportunity to do what I want to do, then I will create it. So I started a practice where I did some corporate litigation, but I also did entertainment law and I did startup law. I was working with new startups and helping them raise money and onboard employees and form corporations, form LLCs. And that was okay. It was better. And I really liked the feeling of independence and being in control of my own destiny. And and I enjoyed running my own business. But the legal practice was still legal practice. Now, the interesting thing was at the same time, a few years earlier, actually, when I was in New York, I'd started doing stand-up just as a creative outlet in my spare time. I'd always been interested in it and I just thought I'd give it a try. And it was the recession and I'd lost the job at Jones Day and I was like, whatever. I'm at a point now where, you know, I'm willing to take some chances. Let's throw it around a little bit. So I started- <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like literally, what is there to lose? I started doing open mics and I loved it. Really enjoyed it. It was fun when I got laughs. It was fun when I did not get laughs. It was fun when there was three people in the audience. It was fun when there were a hundred people in the audience. I just enjoyed it. And I met someone in the course of doing that who was also like, he had a career, he was doing open mics, and he and I were both interested in screenwriting, which was the other thing that I had taken up. And so I moved to LA and he moved to LA and we ended up starting a production company together that I ran alongside my legal practice for about five years. And we settled into a niche of making what we called horror content about technology. So we had videos that went viral on YouTube. We got an investment from Snap Inc. through their yellow startup accelerator program, which was a very sort of selective, prestigious program. Yeah, We had some success there and it was a lot of fun. And I learned a lot about digital content and filmmaking and running a startup and really having the experience of not just advising as an attorney, somebody else who's saying, look, I think I have an investor, can you help? But being the guy who has to go out and find the investor, negotiate that deal, get the documents closed, get the money in the door, and then figure out how to grow the company, which was all really fascinating. But you know, as I say, I ran that business for five years. And after five years, we'd had some success, but we hadn't really taken off in the way that I had hoped. So I decided it was time to move on and find what was next. So in terms of low points in my legal career and trying to leave my legal career, I look at it as there were three sincere attempts that I made to get out of practicing law. It was like I was one of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park just trying to find the weak point in the fence. I think the first one was, let's see, in 2014, I left 
the small firm that I had joined when I moved to LA. And before starting my own practice, I thought maybe I could get out of law entirely. And I consulted a career coach who you know I had one session with, and I told her I was interested in screenwriting. And she flew into a very red-faced rant about how, <laughs> about how the entertainment business was nasty and people betray each other and stab each other in the back. And so whatever I do, I should make sure not to get into that business. And then she sent me on my way. And I was like, okay, thanks. I'll put that in a hopper and see what I, don't I think come I up knew. with. I don't think I knew about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Super helpful. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, so that was that. But I looked at, could I get into advertising? Could I get into real estate? Could I get into just casting about for anything? Like, please, could I just stop doing this lawyer nonsense and do anything else? And one of the things I ran into was I was in my mid-30s and I'd been practicing law for a few years. And so people would say, well, you're too senior to be junior because you're a lawyer and you're older, but you don't have any experience in our industry. So you're too junior to be senior. So I was kind of betwixt in between in a way where they were like, we just kind of don't have a place for you. I'm sorry. And so I ended up settling on starting my own practice. So that was attempt number one, abortive attempt number one to get out yeah. of practicing law. Number two was when my startup production company, when we got the investment from Snap, they really like put their arm around us and said, we're very excited about your company. We love the content that you guys make. We're going to help you raise more money. Like we're going to put you in a rocket ship and send you to the moon. So I was like, great, train is leaving the station. Finally, here we go. And what happened was while we were in that program, the global market for digital media, venture back digital media just collapsed around us. It was almost like it was perfect. It was like the tribulations of Job. As soon as we got the investment, there were a number of very high profile file bankruptcies and closures that happened in, in digital media. There was a company called Defy Media that had raised tens of millions of dollars, 70 million, I think, from, from venture capitalists. And, and just one Friday, they just sent an email to all the employees and said, the company is over. Please do not come in on Monday. We're done. And so people looked at that and said, okay, well, if they can't make it, then probably this idea of like, putting tens of millions of dollars into a content company that just makes content and expecting to get it back somehow on the back end. It just doesn't work. And that was like, there had been a five, six, maybe seven year trend of people making those kinds of investments. And it came to a precipitous halt right at the moment that my partner and I were going out and saying, well, yeah, they didn't make it, but you should really take a look at what we make. And they were like, yeah, thanks. No, I love the track record of timing. Timing. Yes, it has not escaped my attention. <laughs> yeah, I think you and I have talked about it, but it felt, I mean, I didn't try to dwell on it too much because it's a little self-pitying, but I graduated law school into the Great Recession and then I tried to raise money for a digital media startup while the digital media market was going into a crater. You know, it was just like, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, when when I think I it's left good though. I think it's good because honestly, I'm not sure that you would have made the type of transitions and this latest transition in the right. same way had you not been through that. That's right. And that's always the story of your life is like, whatever happens to you for good or for ill, you have to learn from and you have to integrate in a way. And, you know, my mom always likes to say things happen for a reason. And my thought is, yeah, but you have to find the reason. You know what I mean? Like you have to make that reason happen. Mm. For example, when I got laid off from Jones Day, one of the things when I sat down and was like, okay, how do I turn this into an opportunity was, well, without the pressure of feeling like I have a major corporation looking over my shoulder, I can do whatever 
I want now. I'm going to go do stand-up. And that was a tremendous experience and something that I loved and an experience that I'll never forget that I've gotten away from, but I actually hope to get back to. But you know, it's things like that where you have to be able to kind of alchemize those setbacks into new opportunities and say the fact that this did not work out has to create a new opportunity somewhere. But the timing issue is especially interesting because I was really bound and determined that I wanted to be on time for something. And so to feel, as I said, I had first approached the crypto space in 2017, 2018. And so to feel like that wave coming up underneath me in 2020 and 2021, I was like, I get it. Like I could be on time for this. I'm a little bit late, at least relative to people who created these technologies in the like starting in 2010. But I said, I think I'm still early enough that I could get in on this because by and large, most people, even most of my friends, like I have a brother who's a software engineer and he barely understands anything about crypto. He's just not very interested in the space. He knows a little, but he doesn't know it the way that I do. And when I would talk to him about it, he would kind of shrug me off and be like, "Eh, I don't know. So I was like, wow, well, if, if it's still taking this long to sink in, then I could be on time for this. There's an opportunity here to get in, maybe not on the ground floor, but like on the first or the second floor, which is close enough, we'll take it. I just felt very keenly that as I studied the technology and learned about what underpinned all of it, where it's really people look at it and they're like, so which coin should I buy? How do I make money on this this week? And it's like, no, you got to zoom out, pull back and understand like, the point of this technology is not this coin or that coin. The point is that they are remaking from the ground up the architecture of the internet in a way that is going to make the entire internet world more open, more democratic, and more accessible, and take a quantum leap, hopefully, towards the original vision of the internet, which was to create a digital space where any person could realize their potential to do whatever it is that you can come up with to do on the internet, to access information, to access business, to access education, to connect with other people, to learn ideas, to share ideas. I mean, if you want to live in Manhattan, you have to buy an apartment in Manhattan, right? You got to physically go. But short of that, There are so many things you can do on the internet that create opportunities for people that simply did not exist. That you can open a business in Oklahoma out of your garage and have customers all over the world. And it's not even a big deal. Or Moses Lake, Washington. Or Moses Lake, Washington. (laughs) Clients all over the world. (laughs) Yeah. And to connect with them and to do business with them and to really take the next step forward in unlocking finance and business away from these sort of large intermediaries like legacy banks who take fees and credit card processors who insert themselves in the middle of your business deals and charge fees that they spend on CEO salaries and advertising and expense accounts. And why do I have to pay for that? And companies like Google and Facebook who say, yeah, we'll give you these products if you give us all of your personal information, like everything you've ever done. Well, what if I could get the products without having to give up all of my data? I mean, what if that was a thing? And that is really the promise of blockchain technology and and Mm -hmm. cryptocurrency technology as I see it. And to me, that's fascinating because I'm old enough to remember when the internet was born. And while I was playing basketball and talking to my friends in high school on Instant Messenger, there were people who were literally remaking the world with this technology. And I just sort of let it go by. I, I wasn't interested in software engineering. I wasn't interested in web design. I didn't get it. I didn't see it. And it all happened sort of while I was focused on other things because I was 18 or 20. But this time I was like, I'm not, fool me once, right? Shame on you. Fool me twice. It's time to get in on this. 
that was my attitude approaching the crypto space was there's a lot of opportunity here and, and I'm going to find something for myself within this space. This is, I think, going to shape the next 20, 30 years and I want in. And so what was interesting was through the process of working with you and working with Mo was really starting to zero in on, number one, this question of what do I want? It's an incredibly vexing question. And I think I often think about the story that you told when we were working on our writing projects together about being an HR person and having this experience of interviewing people and asking them, tell me something that you disliked that you don't want to repeat from your prior job. And they had a laundry list of 50 things that they did not want to happen again. And then saying, okay, now tell me something that you affirmatively, positively do want from this job that will allow you to achieve your goals of taking this role. And people didn't have an answer, by and large, didn't know, they knew what they were running from, but they didn't know what they were running to. And I think that for me, there was some of that. It was very easy to wake up in the morning and saying, I feel unhappy, I feel bored, I feel undercompensated, underappreciated, and uninterested in my work. I don't want to do this anymore. Great. What do you want to do instead? And I was not certain that I knew that answer. And so that is at least for me, and I think based on our conversations, you know, and what you've told me about your experience with other clients, I suspect this is the work for a lot of people is figuring out what do you actually want? What is your ideal life? And how does your professional work fit into that? And what does that look like? Everything from do you want to work from home? Or do you want to work in an office to what profession? What what sector of the economy? Do you want your own business? Do you want to work for a company? If so, what kind? What size? Nailing down all those things and going through the puzzle method and then doing the career experiments to say like, all right, well, I like writing. Let's try writing. What writing gigs can I get? I like writing. I like creativity. I like producing videos. Could I do that for an ad agency? And I approached that a little bit. I was just sort of throwing it around and seeing what felt good and where people responded to me and where I could find a connection. One of the tools that I took advantage of that I think you often refer people to was that Gallup Strength Finder test, which was a very interesting sort of experience because, you know, what I took from that was number one, they said a lot of things that I think. I believe to be true where they're like, you enjoy ideas, you enjoy sort of high level creativity and and strategy and writing. And I was like, sure, yes, I'm in. But they put, there were a couple of things. They put the word strategist around it. They put the word futurist around it. I was teasing my girlfriend. I was like, I took this test and they say, I'm a futurist. Lucky you, you're dating a futurist. (laughs) So I started, I started like Googling around where I was like, well, that sounds cool. What does a futurist do? It turns out most of the people who are futurist, like qua futurist, where that is their whole title, they basically write books about what they think is going to happen in the next 30 years, which is okay, but didn't 100% feel like exactly what I wanted to do. But it did get me focused on the fact that I do have an interest in technology and that I do have an interest in trying to predict trends and see where things are going. And so again, when crypto bubbled up, it kind of checked that box where I was like, I can see this. This is a high tech futuristic kind of a thing that is happening right now that I could conceivably get in on. And so it did help focus me on that opportunity. And also the fact that they had called me out and said, like, you're a strategist. So just when I was looking around, like even searching on LinkedIn or searching on Google and saying, who's hiring for what? I started throwing the word strategist into my searches and it opened up before I'd been saying copywriter. I'm a writer. I'm a copywriter. What do you need for copywriting? And so I was seeing a list of opportunities for those kinds of roles. But then when I threw strategist into it, I started seeing other roles. And that was very interesting. And 
The other thing I'll say that came out of the Strength Finder test that I was not expecting was they have a whole section on your weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses that they highlighted for me was you don't place a particular emphasis on forming personal relationships or forming relationships at work. And I was like, how dare you? But then I thought about it and I was like, look, I've been a lawyer for 12 years. I haven't liked being a lawyer. Most of the people who I met at work were other lawyers. So naturally, I was not terribly excited about going out for drinks with them after work and talking about all the boring crap that we had worked on all day. So yeah, I had, I realized neglected that part of just my personal development, my professional development. And I started placing a lot of emphasis, a lot of emphasis on just talking to people, just doing the thing of reaching out to people on LinkedIn, reaching out to people however I could. Hey, what you're doing seems interesting. Can we chat for 15 minutes? People who wrote for video game companies, people who, you know, I found a job listing for a position that was called content strategist. And I read that and was like facepalm. I couldn't believe it. I was like, yes, that's an exact description of what I should be doing. I can't believe I didn't think of that. So I applied for that job and ended up not getting it. But I reached out to the guy who ran the company and he and I ended up chatting. And there were a lot of things like that. There was just a lot of like connecting, activating the network. Who do I know? Who do they know? What can I talk to them about? Just anything to try and build connections and it would spark ideas. You know, eventually what I came to was I wanted to start a company that I pitched for a few months called Backer, which was a marketplace to crowdfund movies using NFTs, which is a lot of businessy cryptocurrency jargon. And I won't give the whole pitch, but basically it was like a version of Kickstarter where you paid with cryptocurrency and what you got was an NFT, which is a unique sort of digital receipt, a token that proves your ownership of really anything. And in this case, it was going to be a unique piece of artwork that represented an ownership share of a movie. And so I worked on that pitch for a few months and connected with a lot of new people and got a lot of interest in it. But two things became clear. Number one was that it was going to take me a while to get funded. I thought I could do it quick because crypto was very hot. But in May, the crypto market collapsed and sort of had been growing very quickly and took a breath you could say charitably. So at that point, it was like the energy, the frenetic energy that had been in that space left. And so I was like, okay, well, I still believe in this, but it's going to be a longer road. It's going to take more time. There's not the overabundance of hype and enthusiasm that there was before the crash. Adam, tell me about what you get to do now. Yeah, sure. So uh, what I eventually came to was I'd been trying to do backer for a few months and it was coming along, but it was moving slower than I wanted. And I said, I really want to find something that can start getting me income now. And so I started looking for opportunities. Like I was just going to LinkedIn and running searches that said blockchain strategist. And I surfaced a job listing with Coinbase that was hiring content strategists. And so I very simply just submitted my resume. And two days later, got an email from an HR person at the company and went through a recruitment process and got an offer and accepted and joined the company. And so what I'm doing now is I'm creating both writing content, potentially doing content in other media as well that we're considering, and sort of developing an overall strategy for the content for Coinbase, which is a cryptocurrency exchange. If people don't know, it's a place where you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies that recently had an IPO. So they're the first crypto exchange to go public, definitely in the US and I believe in the world. And so beyond the exchange platform that was their sort of first big product, they're expanding into a lot of new things. And so there's a lot of messaging and content work to do around 
number one, continuing to bring people into the crypto space in terms of just allowing them to understand what is a cryptocurrency? What is a blockchain? How do you invest in this? Why would you want to? How does this all work? And what does it mean? And why should you care about it? But then number two, to start thinking sort of in a forward-looking way yeah. about what are the things that the company is going to do next and how do we communicate with people about those. And so there are a lot of different opportunities in terms of consumer-facing content that we can create that I'm helping sort of strategize and create. And so it's everything from help pages to other kinds of media that we're looking at to put out to just kind of explain to people what this technology is and how it works. I mean, I gave you the basic high-level pitch about what they call Web 3.0, that it's a whole new internet. How does this tick the boxes or many more of those boxes for you in terms of what you wanted? Because we got to talk all the way through, like way back when, when you were lawyering it up during the early stages of your career. And that was not ticking very many boxes in so many different ways. Yeah. And then for each progression, and even though you felt like you missed out on different sets of timing, there were so many learnings from that that allowed you to be able to realize pieces of what you did need. So how does this next evolution of that take many more of those boxes? Yeah, I think that number one, I wanted to be engaged with subject matter that I felt like was interesting and exciting and and fascinating and forward-looking. I had never been able to do that as an attorney. It it always sort of devolved into the same kind of arguments about nothing. I I used to say it was like the Monopoly man versus Mr. Burns and who really cares who wins, this rich guy or that rich guy. Frankly, the great innovation of corporate litigation is it's the best alternative to physical violence. In the Middle Ages, it was like if two rich people got in a fight, they just went and got all their serfs and said, put down your, your crappy plows and stop raking your dirt. I need you to go fight a war for me. Well, so what we do instead of that now is we have lawsuits and that's great, but I don't know if it's where I need to spend my life. It feels like I'm contributing to something that is meaningful and interesting and fascinating and innovative. And frankly, I mean, my jaw is just constantly on the floor hearing some of these kids who are like half my age, who are talking about quadratic voting and talking about consensus mechanisms and are just going at 100 miles an hour, spinning up ideas for how to organize businesses, how to democratize the flow of money around the world, how to open up opportunities for artists to connect with their audiences without having to go through the sausage grinder of intermediaries like studios and record labels. It's it's fascinating. And the possibilities are are literally, literally infinite. You know, I just am astounded by the amount of sheer intellect that is in this space. And frankly, I used to joke that like that poem, Howl, you know, I saw the best minds of my generation uh-huh. wasted something, something. I always used to think I saw the best minds of my generation making exercise app. Like, what are you all doing? It is just what they call Web 2.0, the sort of app store and Facebook and Google. It was like, At a certain point, this stuff has ceased to feel revolutionary. It has ceased to feel like it's moving us forward and it has just become a cash grab for big corporations. And so it is very exciting to feel like there are real ideas here. I mean, ideas that I admit humbly are beyond me to come up with. I'm just excited to engage with them and to be a part of what is going on in this space, because I really think it at least has the potential to reshape so much of the economy and especially uh, the internet in the next 
20, 30 years. So it's creative. I like the people I'm working with. And for the first time, I feel like I have people who are saying to me, when I was a lawyer, it was like, you know, you're doing a good job at this and this, but we really need you to tone it down. It's too many jokes. It's too much talking. You're talking too much. I mean, I've had a litany, like a murderer's row of partners at law firms tell me when we're in a meeting with a client, you got to stop talking so much. I'm the partner. So it's like, I get it, but I know this stuff better than you and what you're telling them is wrong. So, you know, it's nice to finally be in a place where I feel like, and this is one of the things that I think you and I talked a lot about just sort of as a career goal is where you feel like you can bring your entire self to it. You know, like when I was doing creative stuff as a lawyer, I felt like I had to hide it that God forbid anyone at my firm should know that I do stand up. Now it's like I have a podcast and they're happy about it at Coinbase. They're like, great, don't share any confidential information and don't get us in a fight with anybody. But other than that, go have fun. So let me ask you about that really quick here, because I think that that is important. You and I got into some really deep discussions through some of the projects that we were working on about how even though you might get to what you want, even though it can be wonderful, you can still feel a variety of different things. And I I know that you experienced a variety of different feelings, even though you were getting some of what you want as you were experimenting in different areas too along the way, even before this opportunity. And I'm curious. So what first question is, what does that feel like now that you can bring so much more of yourself to work that you couldn't before? And then two, what has been wonderful about that or hard about that? Yeah, I'd say what has been wonderful about it is it it really felt like going into my legal career. I felt it at the time. I felt it during the the 12 years that I was trapped in it. And I feel it looking back is that I just missed my turn. You know what I mean? I just missed an exit. Like I should not have been in there and I just couldn't get out of it. And so to be working now for a technology company and, and doing work that is creative and collaborative and really forward looking feels like what I should have been doing in the first place. I learned a lot as a lawyer. I met a lot of people. I had a lot of wonderful experiences. It is not like it was, I wouldn't say it was a waste of time, but I would say it was not the best use of my efforts. Like it just did not feel like yeah. what I needed to be doing with myself. And so yeah. it feels like, yeah, this is, this is it. This is, this is definitely finally the track that I should have been on in the first place. What's hard about it is honestly, there is part of me that is like, it's like I'm the dog coming out of the shelter that is waiting to get kicked where I'm like, you guys really like me, you know, like you really are okay with me. It's really, I just keep waiting for like the bad thing to happen. You know what I mean? Like for a few days before I started at Coinbase, I had trouble sleeping because I was like, there's something going to happen here. Something is going to go wrong here. Like I'm just waiting to find out that similar to every law firm I ever worked for, that it was all smiles and handshakes and backslaps. And then as soon as you got in the door, it was some sort of waking nightmare. And I was sort of waiting for that to happen. And it didn't. And so it, it took me a few days to accept like, yeah, this could actually be a good place. This could actually be somewhere where I want to get up and go every day, at least metaphorically, because we work yeah. remotely, but still. And so I think there was a little bit of an adjustment that I'm probably still settling into of number one, like you don't have to pretend to be Because lawyers, I think, in large part, get off on behaving like lawyers. You wear the suit, you stand up straight, you speak a certain way, you act a certain way, you know, you comb your hair a certain way. Everybody's there because they want to be a lawyer. And even the ones who aren't there are faking it because, God forbid, they get caught out like being the weirdo. It's different to be in a place where I don't have to do any of that. And then to understand like, okay, so this is a different dynamic. How do I fit into it in a way that feels honest and 
so to speak, true to who I am, but at the same time is like accommodating to my teammates. I mean, how do you do this in a way that is appropriate for this industry and for this company? Because it's a different rhythm and it's a different environment than a law firm or a legal practice or anything like that. So there's an adjustment there. And I just try to be very mindful of like the etiquette and what's appropriate and where I'm allowed to make a joke and where I really shouldn't. So yeah, that's the ongoing adjustment, but it's not catastrophic. It's just something that I need to be mindful of that like, yeah, you can be yourself, but you know, you need to get stuff done and you need to make sure that every, you're making everybody else feel comfortable around you, that you're not stepping on toes, so to speak. So when we started working with you just under a year ago, I guess looking back on that, a lot has, a lot has happened for you. You've done a really, really nice job of making a lot happen for yourself. So first of all, just wanted to say that because that I know I've told you that before, but is so true. And I just feel very compelled to, to say that and make sure that you you know that again. And then my question, even with all of that, I know this was far from this transition was the furthest thing from easy for you. It was not, yeah, the, not easy at all. So I'm, I'm curious about what were some of the hardest parts for this most recent transition for you? Yeah. So there are two that I would highlight. Number one was, well, before we started recording, we were chatting a little bit. You mentioned I had had a job with a startup here in LA that they hired me to write content about sort of certain legal subject matter. And yeah. they offered me a full-time job. And it was the first job that I had been offered to do anything other than be a lawyer since I worked on the presidential campaign in 2004. So like 16 years, 17 years, I got the offer. And it was funny because my girlfriend and I had taken a weekend and just gotten a hotel room in LA so that we had a sort of little staycation and we knew the offer was coming. So like there was a bathtub in the room. So we had a bubble bath and we had a bottle of champagne and I got the offer and I looked at the offer and she looked at me and I was like, this is not good. (laughs) I was like, this doesn't work. So like that was, it was a very sort of funny scene, but yeah, as you know, I mean, as you and I discussed a lot at the time, I talked to them about it and was like, listen, this isn't quite what I was hoping for. Can we talk about this? And ultimately we were not able to come to an agreement and I turned it down. And so at the time it felt like, wow, I was obviously had some regret around that. And was that the right decision? And was that a mistake? And what am I going to do now? But I think you and I talked about it. And you said very often that you find that with people who change careers successfully, somewhere along the line, they'll get a job, but turn it down because they realize it's good, but it's not ideal. Yeah. And so it, to be honest, upon reflection, I, I felt sort of empowered that like somebody could offer me a job, not as a lawyer. And rather than have this desperate frenzied attitude that you always had as a lawyer, especially during the recession of you need a job, there's a law firm offering you a job, just take the job. They'll give you money. Like don't interrogate it. Don't go asking them for this or that. Just say yes and move on. Sit at the desk, do the work, take the money, go home. Try not to get fired. So to be able to actually come to a situation and say like, yeah, this is good, but it's not great. I really appreciate it, guys, but I don't think this is for me. Thanks anyway. That in and of itself was kind of empowering. And obviously, a few months later, I ended up with this offer from Coinbase that, as I've told you, is just a much better fit all the way around. I didn't have to do anything related to law, which was a huge relief. I got to work on something that was much more interesting. And it was just, it's a better established company. And I think all the way around was just a better fit for me. So the turning down the job offer was the first challenge I would highlight. The second one was, 
I spent a few months trying to, as I mentioned, raise money for this startup. It was taking longer than I thought. I was living off of my savings. And I looked at my bank account and I did a little back of the envelope math and realized that I was going to be out of money pretty soon. And so I had to start looking for something that would make money right away. And I had been applying for some part-time copywriting gigs, but just wasn't landing anything, which can happen. Copywriting is like that. So I actually started emailing recruiters and former legal clients and saying, I'm back open for business. If you need legal help, I'm lawyering again. I can help you. And I had some people give me a couple of assignments. So I was right back on the precipice of going back to practicing law just by pure economic necessity. And I was like, here we go again, man, third try and just can't get the escape velocity to get out of the atmosphere of practicing law. Like I was right on the edge of the cliff and I submitted this resume to Coinbase at the same time that I was emailing and talking to legal recruiters and legal clients just to try and get some work, just to make some money because I needed income. And right as I thought I failed again, this will be the third time that I've tried to escape from my legal career and it's not going to work out again. I got the job from Coinbase. It was just that close. But that was, yeah, a really scary moment where I thought, my God, you know, because that was always the fear was that I had gotten myself into this hole and I was never going to be able to get out. And my father had been an attorney and I'd watched him his whole life, just sort of with the attitude that law was not quite a fit for him, but he had no choice and he was stuck in it and he was never happy about it. And I was bound and determined that that was not going to happen to me, but it was starting to get very scary. Like, my God, am I going to be able to get out of this? And then I did. You know, and the thing that I would highlight is, I didn't know that I was going to get that job. I didn't have a personal connection at Coinbase. I was just, for all the bad timing that I've had that we've talked about, that was just astonishingly good timing. Coinbase was on a hiring sprint. The whole economy was coming out of the pandemic. There had been this massive reshuffling of people switching jobs, losing jobs, leaving jobs. So everyone or, or many people were hiring for a lot of things. And in the blockchain crypto industry, there was a, a huge need for people who understood both crypto and content. And I had a screening interview with the HR person. And then I had the first interview with Eleanor, my supervisor. And five minutes into the interview, she called me a unicorn. She said, the fact that you know crypto and you know content, she said, you're a unicorn. And I was like, well, that's a good sign. You don't ordinarily call someone a unicorn and then tell them that you're not going to make them an offer. You know, right away, it was just came together. And it was, if you, I mean, I, I've looked back at the form that I filled out for you and for Mo when I started the career change process. And, and they said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a TV writer. That's where this started. And so, you know, I was not like, I want to be a cryptocurrency content strategist. Not one of those words was anywhere in my mind as a career option when I started this process. It really was like, you know, requires a sort of, I would say, radical open-mindedness. You just have to accept the fact that you don't necessarily know where this is going to go or how it's going to get there. And like the, the Animaniacs theme song, you have to expect the unexpected. <laughs> just lean into it. Just let it wash over you because it's an adventure. And, you know, it has ups and it has downs and it has setbacks. But if you just keep keep going, just stick with it and keep going, you will get there. And that was you what, know what I think is so, so interesting, Adam. Do you remember in just a little bit of other context, we have a really amazing piece of content that Adam helped us write and put together. And it took several months. It's We call it fondly our, our career changer guide. However, we had half the team up to Moses Lake, Washington. And I remember being in yeah. a phone call with you because we were working on a section of this guide, right? And I remember you saying, look, I'm, I'm working on this section and it doesn't 
makes sense. And it turns out that we ended up calling this section, you know, what happens when you experience setbacks. And so setbacks, it, yeah. it was all about overcoming setbacks and adjusting your plan. And I remember having the conversation with you where we're talking about, you know, the strange thing that happens over and over and over and over again, almost like clockwork, is just when people are ready to throw in the towel. That means that they're so, so close. And strangely enough, even though you wrote about this, like you experienced the exact same thing where you're like on the precipice, as you called it, ready to go back to law. And and like, this might just not work for me. And then that's where the opportunity was actually on the horizon. And that's, we see something like that in various different ways every single time. So just want to ask your thoughts on that because you and I hadn't talked about that exact thing, but it's even though you're in it, you knew about it. You, you helped us write about this thing. It still happened. You know, I think that it reminds me of the the Mark Twain quote, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's much easier to give advice than it is to take it. The reality is that to understand that you're going to go through a journey and it's going to have ups and downs does not release you from the obligation to go through those ups and downs. And it was very interesting for me, especially writing that career change guide, because I thought of it in the framework of a screenplay and just a basic sort of narrative arc where you do have what they call the all is lost moment, where it's like, I can't go backwards, but I don't see a way to go forwards. And I'm just stuck here. And in movies, this is often where like characters will sort of contemplate just dying, where it's like, I can't take it anymore. Can this just be over? So that was what I always thought about was just that moment of coming to the point where you absolutely don't see a way to go home, but you don't see a way to reach your destination. And knowing that that can happen, as I say, doesn't release you from the obligation to go through it. You just have to accept like, yeah, that's not going to be a fun moment, but you're going to have to go through it. And I think that especially one thing that I learned running my startup, the production company was we had so many challenges as all startups do. And, and I would get frustrated and I would get upset and I would lose sleep and whatever I did. But it came down to one question, which was, okay, well, do you want to quit or do you want to keep going? And that fundamentally is the choice. Now, even when I was calling up former legal clients and legal recruiters and saying, tail between my legs, I need some legal work. I was still doing the work, reaching out to people, submitting resumes, you know, moving my feet, just like keep moving forward. You're a hockey player, so you'll appreciate this. I played yeah. a little hockey when I was 14 and I was not built for it. I was like, as I am now, very tall, very skinny, better suited to basketball, but I wanted to play hockey. And I remember we did this exercise that was supposed to be training for what it feels like to get body checked where they lined everybody up next to the boards and then they had you skate past the row of like 20 or 30 kids and everybody just got to check you. And the only piece of advice they gave you was just keep your feet moving. That was it. And they just sent you and they called it the gauntlet and they just sent you down the row and kid after kid just like slammed you into the boards and two thirds, three quarters of them were bigger than I was. And I was just getting worked and I was like falling down off my feet and they're like pushing you down. It was, I remember that. I mean, 30 years, 25 years later, that was a rough exercise. But that's like, <laughs> at some point, that's the advice is like, just keep moving your feet. There is no way to go through this that will allow you to do it without getting hit. You're going to get hit. You just have to keep moving your feet. 
And it's like the same thing I say, you know, I have a son, Ezra, who's um, about to turn seven. And, you know, when I would chat with other parents, when especially when he was younger and he was just starting to run around and go on the playground and stuff, and we would talk about like, well, what do you do when they fall? What do you do if they're going to hurt themselves? And I would say, you know, you can't teach them not to fall. You can only teach them how to fall. And that you can read as much or as little into that as you want. But that's my adorable metaphor is like, look, the bad things are going to happen. But if you can just get up and keep going, you will get where you're going. But you, you know, it's on you. Like the choice fundamentally every time is, do you want to quit or do you want to keep going? And it's your choice and you have to own it. If you give up, that's a valid choice. You can give up. It's hard. It's, It's completely valid to say, this is not for me. I give up. I'm just going to go back. But that's your choice. Otherwise, you have to absorb the fact that like, yeah, there were difficult moments. There were confusing moments and frustrating moments and very scary moments where the bank account is going down and there's no money coming in and I'm not figuring out the career change and I don't even know necessarily what I'm looking for and I'm not sure I'm going to make it, but I just decided to keep going. It's just that simple. Yeah, that's what I take from it. That is amazing. I so appreciate you taking the time and coming on and sharing your story. And I told you, (laughs) I've told you this several times over along the way as you and I have gotten to have chats, but I just, this is super fun for me. I've been looking forward to this conversation for the podcast for a long time for for your story. And I'm I'm so glad that we get to have it. Thanks. Great work. Well, I have the unfair advantage that you and I have spent many hours talking through this stuff for our (laughs) writing projects. So I've done like probably seven or eight dry runs. We could release an album of, you know, eight hours of our conversations about career change. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Listen, I'm happy to do it. I'm very grateful for the help. And, you know, it's been a pleasure to get to know you and to to have the opportunity to sort of become a part of your business and your life. I love what you guys do. It's made a tremendous difference in my life. And I was happy to contribute what I could to the content that we made together. And yeah, man, I mean, I'm just looking forward to keeping in touch. So uh, me too. I'm happy to do this. I hope it was helpful to people. And I think it's going to be a very exciting next few years for both of us. So I'm looking forward to it. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that adjusting to setbacks is a dedicated chapter in the Happen to Your Career book. But but that's just one part of the process of making an intentional career change where you're doing work that you're actually excited to wake up for. I would encourage you to learn about all the parts of the process, all the steps along the way, and what we call the milestones to meaningful and fulfilling work. Adam's story is even featured in the book. And if you loved the audio version, I would encourage you to check out the audiobook. You can get it on Audible or go to Amazon or any other place where books are sold. Just search Happen to Your Career and it'll pop right up. And if you haven't already, click subscribe on your podcast player so that you can download this podcast in your sleep and you get it automatically. Even the bonus episodes every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. Until next week, adios, I'm out.